0: we sat at the bar and just talked about what we wanted to create and you know i said i'm looking for somebody that can make really you know world-class beer made with local ingredients when you can find them that are fun but approachable you know like really interesting innovative but approachable and so grant turned to me and he said you know you should never feel like you've earned a medal getting to the bottom of beer and i thought (laughs) that's what i'm talking about (laughs) you know
1: Welcome to the climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore, and I am proud to announce we are recording Lucky Number 30 today. Johnny, can you believe that? I'm sitting across from Rhett Kiesler. Uh, Like me, he is a dad of daughters, true entrepreneur. I think he refers to himself as a uh, reformed banker by trade. And we're really going to dive into the entrepreneurial spirit of this guy. He's had a, a wonderful climb, lots of defining moments. And why don't we start off, Rhett, tell me what I'm drinking right here and why I'm excited about this.
0: Well, Michael, uh, first of all, thanks for having me thanks on. Thanks for being here. This is a treat. You got to love a podcast that you can start out and crack open a nice drink. I uh, wish they all started there. Yeah. 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 So what you're drinking there is a watertight cocktail. This is my new venture. And I say my, I'm partnered with a gentleman that lives down in Houston, Texas. His name is Ryan Baird. and. We've got a couple people that are also working with us, Daniela and Liz. And so the four of us have come out with these brand new cocktails. And so it's a canned cocktail and people say, oh, okay, what makes it so special? Let me tell you why it's different. So this is the, in the grocery store, this is the only all real cocktail. So we're talking sparkling water, alcohol, and just fresh juice, purees, And a little hint of agave nectar in there on a couple of them. So there's three of them. I mean, you're drinking the guava Paloma. It's awesome. Well, good. I'm glad you like it. I'm almost done with this one. Yeah. They they sneak up on you a little (laughs) bit. Yeah. And they're 6% alcohol, 130 calories. So, you know, you can feel good about it.
1: So I can keep my girlish figure and and figure
0: and enjoy these cocktails. I love it. Yeah.
1: So it's, as somebody that grew up in, in Central Texas where water's a big freaking deal, where do you get the water from? What, how does that work?
0: So these are made in Austin. So this is Austin water. Okay. And they are uh, co-packed in Austin. We have a facility down there that co-packs them for us. And um, it's just good old Austin water that they filter and put in a can, carbonate and put in a can.
1: So give us the, the 411 on the idea, the background, like concept to me enjoying it now.
0: Well, Ryan and I both grew up in Texas. And in Texas, you got to get to the water to, st- to stay, keep your body temperature regulated. And so, you know, we've, we talked about, you know, both he and I have uh, backgrounds in the beverage business and we got to talking about, Hey, let's do something that doesn't exist out there. That's fun because, you know, we're both at that stage in our life where we're going to have a good time and enjoy ourselves. And one of the things that we do is we're always out on the water, you know, whether it's boat or in the pool or, and, you know, we started talking about, it. we said, you know, that's really where some of your best memories are built is, you know, if you think about the trips that you made floating down the river right. or you went to some lake or you went, you know, hung out at the pool all day somewhere, went to the beach, whatever it may be. I mean, that's where we have some of our best memories. And so we, you know, we're lamenting the fact that I came from the beer business. He came from the spirits business. And, you know, we were looking for something kind of light and refreshing that you could take on the boat or take to the pool and you don't have to lug Bottles of spirits out there, or, you know, fruit, cut up fruit or juices or things mm-hmm. like that. And so we were just looking for something that was real, like you would make at home, but was convenient in a can. And so that's where we came up with this idea. You know, I mean, I know the vast majority of seltzers, for example, out there, you know, they all have different, both artificial and natural mm-hmm. flavorings and have artificial sweeteners on them and you know just some people like that but me personally i'm not a big fan of the fake flavor and the artificial sweeteners and that weird taste that it leaves in your mouth so we were looking for something that was just clean and you know the funniest reaction i've had so far is somebody tried the guava paloma one of my good friends and he goes you know this actually tastes like uh red grapefruit juice and i was like that's because it is, yeah. you know. You just yeah, get yeah. that, like, like surprise. Like, this actually tastes like grapefruit juice. Yeah, that's why. And talk about that for a minute, because I think it's interesting. You're
1: sourcing all of the different natural flavors from different parts of takes so that the the grapefruit is South Texas.
0: So again, the the see so you you immediately went to it. You said natural flavors, right? You know, these are like fruit juices. There's not, you know, natural flavors are an actual thing, right? You know, that are made in a lab. and the difference between and that's a whole rabbit hole that's fun to go down if you ever just go on youtube and search for the difference between natural and artificial flavors it's really fascinating but these are just we have sparkling water from austin we've got alcohol and we have fruit juice and fruit purees so we use lime juice you know this is not from concentrate right, lime juice right. so this isn't this is off the tree this is well i don't know about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's as close yeah. as you can get to mm-hmm. off the tree it's the stuff that you're buying at the grocery store when you're buying fresh juice it's not from concentrate lime juice orange juice and rio red grapefruit juice and this comes from south texas so down in the rio grande valley where a lot of great citrus is grown we also have we will use mango puree in the mango sipper that's our other uh, one of our other cocktails and then I think johnny's about done with his too. yeah johnny on the spot on that one there sorry to use a bad to use a bad uh, but,
1: no I, I mean i think yeah. you're you're picking up on a something that that i've spent a lot of time thinking about and actually been involved in you know growing up in central texas and in, in dripping springs we were one of the first organic farmers i and know i've
0: listened to that podcast and yeah, i find yeah, it we, fascinating we
1: talked a lot about it with with the yeti boys uh, yeah. another you know genius brand right but they've th- done all right they've done all right but then <laughs> that That misnomer that people would throw around about really what organic is or biodynamic or fresh or farm to table is like there's the reality of what it really is and then there's the marketing of it so
0: demystify or demyth really what you're doing here and why it's different you know it's it's really funny because we'll tell people like this is an all real product or made with one hundred percent real ingredients, and you just kind of get like a nod right you know i was I was really hoping for the oh my God, thank Finally. you. Finally, yeah. someone has made this all real product. But you just realize that how convoluted our vocabulary is when it comes to what's in what you eat and what you drink. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, just read the can. It's on there we have the FDA label on the can. And that's exactly what it is. And it's like water, alcohol, lime juice, orange juice, you know, in the margarita, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's this stuff comes in a drum. Like, Well, it's actually multiple they put it in a bag, which goes in another bag, which may even go in another bag. And then it goes in a, they tie it up and then they put it in a drum and they ship it to us. And it's not from concentrate. It's the juice. It's cold. And we mix it in with, uh, you know, our recipes.
1: That's awesome. You know, you mentioned the the passion for water and with the real probability that our daughters will listen to this. I am going a little bit out on a limb here, but in high school, we discovered you know, new bronzefuls and the river down there. And that was a whole lot more fun sometimes than an afternoon full of classes. And the big drink back then was Zima. And it's it was so terrible and gave you <laughs> the worst headache, but that's kind of what we had access to. So thank you for you know the next generation not having to drink Zima. Well, this is a hell of a lot
0: better. Uh, well, thank you. We're we're doing our best.
1: So Obviously, before Watertight, there was a, another beverage company. And that's actually how we met down in Granbury,
0: however many years ago. That Ten, was probably yeah, nine years ago. Yeah, yeah. 2011, 2012, somewhere in that area.
1: So before we continue kind of down the path of, of Watertight, I think it's, it's always important to talk about kind of how you got there first so before we go all the way back to age zero through five and growing up in singapore let's just start with granberry texas kind of your home roots your home base and that idea to get out of the corporate world and get really entrepreneurial with your dad and
0: start there well to dial granberry into the equation properly i have to say up until that point i had been in the finance world and so I had done stint and as an investment banker, and I can go into that if you'd like, but you know, I'm sitting up in Toronto and I was working for a hedge fund up there. And as you guys know, this is 2008 and the market was going crazy. People were going out of business left and right. And so at the time I had been, providing financing for kind of small to mid-sized businesses that needed capital, special situations type of stuff. And as you guys know, that's not real liquid. You know, when you loan them money, you don't get it back the next day. So the industry was changing mm-hmm. and the amount of the pool of capital that I had to lend out was growing, was uh, shrinking very quickly and because of, you know, the illiquidity of it. And so I said, okay, Either I've got to go back on the other side of the fund that I was working for and do, I won't get into all the details there, but basically much it was transactions that were much more liquid dealing with public stocks and bonds, or it was change. And I said, you know, I thought about it hard. I think I had experienced one too many dark winters in Toronto and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with Toronto. Right. The 30 minutes of summer that they have is wonderful. It's <laughs> truly great. <laughs>
1: Don't be taking a nap when it happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Watch that. Watch that clock. No, it's a great city. It really is. But anyway, we wanted to move back to the States and I got to get I had to get back to, you know, hot and, you know, that's where I thrive. And so we moved back to Granbury. So that's how I got back to Granbury. And my dad, he uh, Ron Kiesler, he was a uh, oil and gas man for like 30 years with Marathon Oil Company. And that's what took us all over the world. So if we get into that today, you'll know why we were moving around, you know, every few years. And he and I, given my finance background and his oil and gas background, you know, we really looked hard at putting together an oil and gas deal. And this was during the unconventional play, kind of the Eagleford Shale and some of the the new exciting drilling, uh, horizontal drilling plays that were going on. And I think we tried, oh, maybe for a year and a half or something like that, too. We looked at a number of different deals. We even tried to make an offer on a few of them. And I think oil was about a hundred bucks a barrel, and people just weren't in a big hurry to sell. And so, th- this is, and it's so frustrating, you know, waiting on people to get back to you. And, you know, I've always had this entrepreneurial bent, uh, bend, and a friend of mine, a doctor there, invited me over to homebrew. Mm-hmm. And I remember doing that for the first time and the smells and the whole thing. And I, you know, I'm, uh, we can get into this, but like when I find something that's interesting, I'm a curious person by nature. And when I find something interesting, I go down that rabbit hole a lot of times, often to my wife's chagrin. (laughs) Um, she's like, can you please get that stuff out of the garage? But anyway, so in that particular case, I just, I don't even know how to describe it. It was about the close, one of the closest things I've had to just having us A moment, you Mm -hmm. know, and I just thought, God, this is such fun and such a great thing. And, you know, I mean, not that I hadn't been paying attention out there because I had seen places like the Flying Saucer and, and, you know, places like that that had, were really like, and they'd been doing it for years, but it had happened elsewhere first, you know, on the West Coast and even on the Upper East Coast and in Colorado where they were sort of introducing people to what beer could be. You know, we grew up with light beer, you know, for the most part. And I had just kind of been watching that and I had, after I went on this homebrewing venture with uh, my buddy that night, you know, I said, hey, dad, let's go check out the homebrew place. I'd love to learn how to brew beer. So I went down to Austin Homebrew with my dad and uh, we drove down to Austin. I don't even know why we we're there, but we went to Austin Homebrew. And this place was like a Tuesday afternoon and it's hopping. People everywhere buying stuff. And, you know, there, you could just see this really renewed interest in beer happening in Texas and it's an affordable luxury. You know, people were losing their jobs and they just wanted something to go do that was fun and interesting. And they, people are starting to care about where their food and drink was made. And there were a number of forces that were kind of coming together at that point and not to take anything away from the brewers that were already in Texas. There was a surge in like 98 where some of the early folks in Texas, you know, built breweries in Houston and, and, and in Austin. And we, you know, but I kind of, went back started brewing beer started really you know that's when the 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 finance guy came out though and I started like researching the industry as they say and I'm looking at this and I'm saying gosh Texas is the second largest consuming state in the nation and yet we are 48th in the nation on breweries per capita and this was 2000 and 2011 this okay. was about wow. march of wow. 2011 <sighs> it's crazy how fast that's changed yeah yeah and That doesn't necessarily have to ever change, but it sure felt like a decent bet that it would change. And what I figured out, I figured out a few things really quickly. Number one, I suck at brewing. No question. (laughs) I mean, absolutely terrible. You know, I tried really hard, but, you know, my dad. Did you figure that out by tasting your own product or were your friends (laughs) honest with you? you can taste your own product. Okay. Like everybody's beer is good when you first open it, maybe. And then, you know, give it a, or let it age a little bit and it starts turning and you know, it's just, I'm just not good at it. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's a common theme by the way, throughout my life is don't kid yourself. Like mm-hmm. that's the worst. I tell my daughters all the time. I'm like, one of the worst things you can do in life is kid yourself. So try and be honest about what you're good at and what you're not good at. And so I put this, I'm going to call it a presentation but i just was riffing in my office one day and i was like okay i want to, if, if i want to do this what am i going to call this place what do i want to do here and i remember i built a powerpoint presentation and called it revolver brewing i just love that name i thought it was a little edgy and i yeah. just love the revolver the old old revolver as a symbol for sort of kind of self-determination and a little bit of texas independence and you know that was that was kind of why i was first drawn to that and i put a pitch together if that's the way to describe it. And I, uh, my dad and I had gotten a little office, rented a little office there in Acton, Texas, Yeah, next to Freedom Physical Therapy. Shout out there to <laughs> our next door neighbors. And yeah. uh, I pitched him on this idea. I said, dad, look, I don't want the typical dad reaction to this. Like, ah, this is a stupid idea. <laughs> you know, I want like you to think about it. Right. So, and to his credit, I mean, he looked at, and I hadn't done a ton. I just kind of scratched the surface a little bit and to his credit he said i think you may be on to something here and that was really the initial spark and you know here's a guy that had worked for marathon oil company for 30 years had retired had spent 10 years in retirement playing golf hunting doing all the things that you do and i'd pulled him out to you know to do this oil and gas stuff i say i pulled him out i think he was also trying to help his son to be very honest And he did greatly because we partnered and started Revolver Brewing. And I mean, once we had that path, like you couldn't stop us because we were so tired of waiting on people to get back to us to buy stuff. We went out, we bought property, we ordered equipment. We just, we were on this new path of we're controlling the pace. And that's what started it all. But we knew very quickly that we needed to find somebody that knew how to brew beer. Right. So So, so let
1: me interject for a second, because... We've talked a lot about the relationship between parents and siblings on this podcast, and there's probably more examples than not of going into business with your dad would be a terrible mistake. I lost my dad about a year and a half ago, and while we were best friends, I don't know that we would have been the best. Maybe we would have. We never tried it, but I'm just thinking through like, he was so philosophical in nature and, and a ponderer and kind of let things come to him. And I'm, well, I will think through things. I'm much more action, make it happen, market movement, go embrace the day rather than waiting for it to come to you. So in thinking through, okay, dad's been successful at Marathon, y'all obviously have a good relationship. How did you, the two of you sort of dance around the subject of doing this together and making it work? Well,
0: you know, it's interesting that you say that your dad was your best friend. You know, my dad and I had a great deal of respect for each other, but I wouldn't say we were best friends. He was a, he grew up very poor mm-hmm. and he was on a mission from day one. Well, maybe day three. It took him a little bit to get in gear, but boy, once he did, that was it. You know, he was on a mission. He started out as a field level geologist at Marathon Oil Company and worked his way up. You know, he was, he ran worldwide exploration for him. So wow. I had this great deal of respect. He was one of those guys, it was sort of like you called his secretary to figure out where in the world he was that day. Yeah. You know, yeah, he was yeah, on yeah. some signing some deal with the, you know, some country somewhere. So it was an interesting, but growing up, he was a great supporter, but he was also tough. You didn't sit still too too long around our house, you know, he'd put you to work. And so he was really tough. And And the combination of him and my mother, if we're talking about parents, sure. you know, my mother was like a saint. She's always there, just supportive, great. And so we'd bounce back between going out and trying to fend for ourselves. And dad would, you'd have this interaction where he'd say, okay, you did a good job here, but do not do this again mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he was always the, the one that kind of shaped your reality out. Maybe that's a, shaping reality. I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but you know, he's the guy that was wouldn't put up with much. And so I guess it, that shaped my reality pretty well, right. but my mother was there as a supporter. So you take that dynamic and then you fast forward and he and I had worked together now on the soil and gas stuff. And we were both kind of in the same boat as that. It was like, okay, we're just trying to get somebody to pay attention to our offers and sell us something. And so we had had a little bit of working relationship there and that had, that had gone pretty smoothly, frankly. Then once we started the brewery, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, like there were awesome days and there were days that sucked. Yeah. I mean, I used to joke. I said, look, if you look over at the brewery, if you see the roof coming off of the I beams, that's Ronnie and I <laughs> going at each other. So, you know, we had, you know, and then we, and, and really, I mean, we had some knockdown dragouts. I mean, nothing got physical, but it was pretty tough a yeah. few days, yeah. you know? And I think that we would both, if I asked him, I mean, and we were truthful, I would say that. I was the son when we showed up and I needed to get to the point where I was not just a son, but a business partner. And that takes, there's a rough road to get there sometimes because you've got to prove yourself and you have to, you know, have his trust. But he's an A-type personality and as and I am too. And so there's some friction there that happens naturally because I think I know the best way to do it. He thinks he knows the best way to do it and probably only one of us are right. And there were some times where I look back and he was right. And there were some times I look back and I was right. And so that's just the way it goes. And it turned out to be a wonderful partnership because, and that's another theme of my life is that you can't do it alone. You know, you really need, whether it's support or you need a team, everybody brings something different to the table. And that's part of being honest with yourself. And so I'm like one of those people that will analyze something until, you know, the old analysis to paralysis, Mm -hmm. you know, I can, I can be very guilty of that. So. And my dad, his famous, he tells me all the time, just do something, even if it's wrong. (laughs) And so, you know, he's kind of the make it happen guy. And so he took care of a lot of the pushing of building the actual physical and, you know, the physical brewery and making sure all of that was getting done. You know, I focused more on like the accounting and finance piece of it because that was my background and a lot of the marketing and branding. And we haven't gotten to Grant yet. He's an integral part of the story for sure. But um, I mean, we've kind of been on father son, but those were the roles. But Grant picks up the piece that you sucked at, right? Grant definitely picked yeah. up the piece that, and not only I sucked at, I mean, Ronnie never even tried to brew. So, well, I that, <laughs> sure. He might have helped me one, one, you know, a couple of times, but no, we were terrible. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so you get
1: your, your brew master, right? That, that's the technical term. And that's kind of the three legs of the stool. So, talk about product development, uh, a certain fortuitous neighbor that may have made some honey or something <laughs> along the way, and, and just kind of the launch of the revolver brand.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we said, okay, well, we need a brewer and let's get a good one. So, uh, Grant and I joke that, you know, like most modern romances, we met on the internet. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, with uh, what I had posted on, I think it was uh, Pro Brewer and the uh, maybe it was like the Beer Advocate forum or something like that. And we, I, I said, you know, we're a brand new brewery located in Granbury, Texas, and you know, basically, we're looking for a brewmaster. So I get this email, you know, Hi, my name's Grant Wood, and I'm from Texas, and you know, I brewed beer for Pearl and Lone Star back in the eighties and nineties. And I'm trained at the Siebel Institute and, you know, I've spent my last 16 years up at Boston beer company as head of brewing and, or sorry, brewing manager. And, you know, would you like me to send me, I mean, would you like me to send, send you my resume? And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: You know, that'll like, be one more than
0: I have right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So Grant sent, sends, you know, I mean, literally, I was like, "Yeah, please do." You know, so Grant sends me this resume, and you know, honestly, I look back and I laugh because I think I thought, "Oh, you, these this happens all the time." You put out a post, and you get these great resumes coming in. Anyway, it was a lightning strike for us; like, it was yeah. fantastic. And so Grant and I corresponded via email. And then my wife, Jennifer, she is from Long Island and we were going up one summer to visit her family. And this was, I guess this was the summer of 2011. And I said, Hey, Grant, I know you're in Boston. I'm going to be coming up to Long Island. Maybe we can meet. And he's like, sure, I'll get on the train. I'll meet you in New York. So we go up there and I meet Grant. God, he always remembers. I think this was at Flying Saucer 33rd and I got on the Penn, I took the train to the Penn Long Island Railroad to the Penn streets, Penn street station and met him. I think it was the flying saucer on 33rd. And the, the, the funny thing is, is that I had, you know, I'm on long Island and I'm like, I'm going to do some surf fishing beforehand. You know, I've always loved to fish. So I'm going to do some surf fishing. Well, I had, Cast so hard that I like threw my back out. So (laughs) I'm walking like an old man into this bar. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, Grant's going to think, like, what have I done? Who am I dealing with here? Anyway, I walk in and uh, we meet there and we just talked. We just talked about, you know, we sat at the bar and just talked about what we wanted to create. And we said, look, we want to make these, you know, I said, I'm looking for somebody that can make really, you know, world class beer made with local ingredients when you can find them that are fun, but approachable, you know, like really interesting, innovative, but approachable. And so Grant turned to me and he said, you know, you should never feel like you've earned a medal getting to the bottom of a beer. And I thought (laughs) that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And anyway, we just had a great visit there and talked about, you know, music that we liked and stuff like that. And so anyway, it was a real, just a really good afternoon. And so came back to Granberry and made Grant an offer and he came down, I think, to visit a couple of times. And it was one of those things where his wife, Sue, uh, came with him. And we, I remember we'd go out to this mud hole of a field and we'd say, okay, this is where it's all going to be, you know. And you're trying to convince somebody who's at probably the top of their game right. to take a bet on coming down to Granberry. And this empty grass field here you see is where it's all going to be. And, you know, was trying to pitch that vision. And to his credit, he was like, all right, let's do it. So he moves down and I guess he moved down and and joined us. I think he started like January 3rd of 2012 and he's there and we bought this property that was a house. It was a single family residence and it had a, it was a dog kennel groomer <laughs> place next to it. Okay. And we <laughs> I say we, I think my mom, Doris, led the charge. Like we had to clean this thing. And we cleaned it, I think, for about a month because you know, there's dog hair and everything else in there. And we took this thing almost down to the studs cleaning it and got it ready to go. And Grant moves in. I had bought a small system to start brewing there. And we're brewing beers on the small system. And you know, word gets out in the neighborhood, like, okay, here's a property. What's why are all these cars coming over here? You know, because we're out in the country and what's what are they doing over here? And we get, a, some, knock, some we get people a knock we get a knock on call the door.
1: country folk friendly and others might call them nosy right <laughs> either way they want to know what's going on either way yeah, they want to yeah, know yeah,
0: they want to yeah. know what's going on exactly so we got a knock on i don't actually there's a guy that shows up and i'm dad i wasn't there i don't know what i was doing but dad the guy comes up and he says hey i've got some buckets of honey in my truck here and i'm a beekeeper i live down the road and this honey is crystallized and i don't feel like messing with it Would you guys want to make a beer out of it and dad's like hang on i know the guy to ask so hang on so he marches him in there and says grant this is the guy you got to talk to here so uh, grant to his credit says yes you know we'll take that honey and you know i mean i saw it there in the bucket and it was crystallized but this nice red orangish color honey and i'm sure they they had a u pick down the street so it was all you'd go out there and the kids would pick strawberries or peaches or whatever it was with these bees that's where they hung out. That was the, that was his place. Uh, Fall Creek Farms was the name of it. So Grant started thinking about, you know, what beer can I brew with this honey? So he made a wheat beer from it, but he had made this dessert when he was in Boston. It was a party. I think that he was, he was leaving town and somebody had thrown a party and it was one of these things where everybody brings a dish. And he had brought this blood orange sorbet dish with some spices on it and some honey drizzled over the top of it. And that's what he thought of when he saw the honey. So he basically made a blood orange and honey with some spices. I cannot name those here, but some spices in there. Right. And that became blood and honey. And it's a very weird recipe that Grant came up with. And that beer absolutely built our brewery. Yeah. It just absolutely took off for us.
1: You know, I'm just sitting here going down kind of memory lane of call it my Beer drinking career or whatever. (laughs) Hopefully that hasn't ended. No, 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 no. no. I I would say it's it's been refined. (laughs) And you know, I just think back. Like, I mean, obviously we talked about Zima and some bad choices in high school. But you know, once I became of drinking age and I could do this responsibly or at least legally, you know, you had all the name brands out there. But then things started kind of sneaking into my radar, like Sam Adams or Shiner, you know, Texas beer, or my dad loves Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Mm -hmm. And so this whole new world of like kick-ass beers started getting on my radar. And then to your point, like seeing that buzz down in Austin, you started seeing kind of these communities almost pop up that were just, they weren't peddling hard alcohol. It was like beer and good food and a good time. And like this community and just hanging out. And lots of successful people would tell you timing's everything, but like you guys just nailed it on the timing where it wasn't this hardcore beer, you know, that had this like super hoppy taste that hit you in the face. And that was the difference maker. It was like this smooth, honey tasting beer. You're like, holy shit, this is really good. And versus those kind of harder ones where I definitely want one and maybe even two but i'm going to struggle to have that. like it was a, an all day drinking beer that was just wonderful so did you kind of know you had you know, something special in a bottle at that point like when when did you guys go oh man this is this this could be big
0: yeah so first i think i have to say like grant knew when he got there he was not going to be in a race for the hoppiest beer like that was his I'd like to say Grant at his, you know, is kind of a chef at heart, and you know, he he just he saw a lot of people doing really hoppy, and he said that's not the direction I want to go. And I said, fine, let's, you know, yeah, show us what you want to do. And so I would say that, like, from just a, a direction. Grant knew that early on that that's what he wanted to do. And don't get me wrong, we caught some flack because we didn't have a hoppy beer for sure. a good, you know, I don't even remember what it was, year and a half or something like that. And hoppy beers are delicious, but they, and some people can drink them, uh, you know, a ton of them. But, you know. Speaking of drinking, hold on. Okay. In full disclosure, this
1: is just number
0: two. Keep <laughs> the margarita. So that was the direction that we we started with. The thing though about blood and honey and when we knew, it was going when we knew we had something. Was I mean? Well, first of all, Grant ran that beer out to me after he pulled it for the first time, and I was mowing the lawn on the little riding lawnmower out there around the kennel. And maybe it had to do with the fact that it was probably you know 100 degrees or right. 102 or whatever, but that tasted like the best beer I'd ever yeah, had. Yeah. So, but you know, I'm one person, but we went to a festival. Maybe you want to call it? I think it was a Indoor festival. I think it was in Arlington, and anyway, I don't remember the exact place it was. It was up north, uh, north of Dallas, Addison. I yeah. think it was Addison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went to the um, like a beer festival up in Addison, and we set up for the first time, and we brought like five different beers, and brought the kegs up there, and hooked up the jockey box, and had them all ready to pour. And you know, people start milling around. The thing's opening. It starts getting crowded. People milling around trying beers. And all of a sudden you'd see our line just getting longer and longer and longer. And for a brief moment, I kind of stepped away because I wanted to go try another beer that I'd seen on the way. And so I'm walking over there real quick to grab it. And I hear people talking on the way, Hey, have you tried blood and honey, new, new brewery revolver brewing? You got to go. And so I heard blood and honey a couple of times on the way over there. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. So I book it back to the table because I can't leave very long because we've got a long line, but our line was like 50 yards long and four people wide. And we knew at that point because people, you know, you you pay your fee and you get a punch card or whatever, and you only get so many. They're coming back over yeah. and over getting the same beer. Well, you know, if you're getting the same beer, you know, you've been ordered over and over again. You know, you've got a hit there, you know, and that's where it all started. And then a guy by the name of Scooter Hendon uh, wrote an article and another guy, Tony Drury, who's this just awesome individual picked up on it. And, you know, I guess it just was a great thing, first of all, that we had this wonderful experience at the festival. Scooter writes an article, Tony Drury starts t- talking to people about it. And it was like, it just takes a little bit of spark to get mm-hmm. the fire started. And then, you know, we would attend festivals after that. And you just, you know, it just kind of grows very quickly. It's amazing how fast word of mouth takes off.
1: Do You think if, I mean, back to the sort of timing comment You know, if you had been three years later or two years earlier, would you have, I mean, was it that specific? You just hit it with a market that back to your earlier analytics of like how far behind Texas was in that game. You just found this like extra ladder and extra gear because of the blood and honey. Or do you think it it would have done that if you had been three years later?
0: If I had to choose, I'd say it's a lot, it was a lot harder to do three years later. Mm -hmm. There was a group that sort of came out around the same time. Revolver Brewing, Deep Ellum, Lakewood, petacolis right. These are all coming out about the same time. I think Deep Ellum may have been a year, year ahead of us, but it was all about the same time. And three years after that, you know, we had all had established beers in the market. And not that there wasn't room for somebody to come make a name for themselves, but yeah. I mean, when it first started, I remember I'd go just talk to people and they'd say, I'd say, yeah, we're building a brewery, and they'd say, "Wait, what?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're building a brewery. You're gonna make it yourself, like here, out here in the country? It, you know, it was like almost unbelievable, and it was exciting and interesting, and you know, fast forward, and and now look at how many breweries are out there, right. and that's not a big thing, you know, it's not that big thing that it was, but I think, you know, I I don't know if I'm right in this, but. What we saw or what I felt I saw was that was sort of like you either had to have a certain, you had to reach a certain amount of scale that you had the momentum and the size to sort of be a player at a larger size in the market, or you took another business path and you said, okay, we're going to own this, you know, our neighborhood. And so it was easy to be, I'm not going to say easy because none of it's easy, Mm -hmm. but your business model was either, I'm going to be, you know, the brewer for this neighborhood. And, you know, it's usually a small business and the person that's brewing the beer is usually the owner and they're right there. And, you know, we had a different business model. Ours was build a regional brewery. That's what we wanted to do. I mean, really, we just didn't want to lose our ass. But that was (laughs) after that, it was build a regional brewery, right? That was the second thing we wanted to do.
1: So, you know, in thinking about all the, the entrepreneurs that are out there like you at that point in their career, and this happens in every single business across every single segment, across every part of the world at some point, right? You're either in the way or you're desirable enough where the bigger company says, oh, I I want that market share. I'm I'm coming down and I'm buying these guys. So talk about kind of how that process played out and how you instinctively knew. And now you've had time to reflect, right? On, yeah, this is what we need to do next.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think what what happened was is we created this beer, blood and honey. And it really started making waves in Texas because we were, frankly, for our tap to go on, usually somebody else has had to go off. And so whether, you know, a lot of times if they're, we, we never targeted any anybody's tap in particular, but I didn't care whose it was. I just wanted one. And so I'd say, give us the worst performing tap you've got in here. We'll, you know, we'll do better. You know, and if you do that enough, I think it starts to get people's attention because they're seeing a dent in their business. And, either in a defensive move or being proactive. And they say, look, we see the way that the winds are blowing and craft beer is really a thing. And, you know, we want to participate in that. And I think there's a truth in that as well. For whatever reason, I just got a call from a guy that I've known since we really started. And he said, hey, would you be interested in taking a call from Miller Coors? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, I'll take a call from Miller Coors, you bet. (laughs) So that basically led to a a meeting. So we met at the great American beer festival out in Denver and talked to them there. And there was probably, there was like two or three folks from, from Miller Coors and just really hit it off. Great folks. And they said, well, listen, we like what we see out here. You know, we've tried the beers. We'd like to come visit you in Granbury. So they came to Granberry. and that's, you know, we just started the conversation there and showed them around and took them through all the beers and you know, just started to build a relationship with them, you know, they, you know, I've often thought about this because I'm like, they had a strategy that they wanted to fulfill. Mm -hmm. They wanted to buy a brewery in each region, you know, how they defined it. So Southeast U S South, central Southwestern. And so they wanted to buy a brewery in each one of those places. And we were really, you know, in looking at it in hindsight, we were really a great play potentially in that we had self-distributed really up until mm-hmm. that point. We had not signed with a distributor. So it was just very clean for them to come in. And because I don't know for listeners out there, when you sign with a beer distributor, you're kind of locked into that contract. And we were sort of a clean slate in that regard from a distribution standpoint. So we had a really strong brand in Texas, which is the second largest drinking you know, state in the nation. Behind- and we, California, got it. And we, uh, you know, I think we were just a, you know because we had this clean slate on distribution we had this great brand and great product and look at the end of the day revolvers very texas right mm-hmm. so you had a really nice iconic brewery that could represent texas and so i think a, you know big picture it's that's that's probably what sparked the interest you know we i didn't build that brewery to sell it i mean honestly i thought i'd pass it down to my daughters who Strangely enough, have want to have absolutely nothing to do with it because they <laughs> spent every weekend there growing right, up, right. you know, in their formative years. So yeah, but at the time, no, I was not looking to sell it. I mean, and I, my investors, my original investors, which were kind of friends and friends of friends, you know, I probably we did have the exit slide in the original presentation, but you know, honestly, I just thought we'd build this thing and run it for years and years. But when that happens and they make you an offer. You know it gets very real yeah and i had to come to terms with that because you are selling your baby make right. no mistake right i mean you know you're selling your baby and there are other considerations too and um, here's my dad you know he's 70 something years old and the offer that they're making would be life-changing to him so is it right for me and this man has put in blood sweat and tears right you know and it's a family affair i mean my mom Cooked meals for everybody at yeah. lunch for like the first year and brought them in the trunk of her car up to the brewery. My wife does all Jennifer does all the merchandising. Sue, you know, Grant's wife is up there helping. Like this is our kids are there every weekend. I mean, this is our life. It is all in. And you're looking at that, and you're saying, okay, you know, are we like, is it fair for me to require my dad to continue to be all in? Like for how long does he have to work? Till he's 80, 90, you know, like right. and so here is an opportunity where. They're basically making you an offer that you shouldn't refuse, but you are selling your baby. And and there's some emotional stuff that comes with that. And, uh, you know, we can go into that more if you want, but there's some emotional stuff that comes with that.
1: You're bringing something up really interesting that I want to tie back to a, a comment you made at the beginning about the relationship between you and your dad and this this transformation between just being his son he just being your dad to like true business partner. And if you think about your background before you got into realizing you couldn't brew beer for shit, but you could <laughs> damn sure build a business plan around it. Now you're to the point where you're sitting at a table where you tell me but likely your investment banker background kicks in, you understand multiples and EBITDA and multiples of EBITDA and whatever algorithm they were using to say this is what we think the future value of your company is, and we're willing to pay you. Right. So probably before then, but certainly that would be a defining moment of like equalizing that relationship between you and your dad, where you're truly business partners at that point going, yeah, we got to take into considerations his age, life-changing event here. But at that point y'all
0: were, y'all were partners. Yeah. Yeah. We were partners and you know, you realize how much you rely on each other. And you also realize that without him, you know, what am I, you know, and, you know, Grant was looking potentially at retiring and not too long from then. And so, you know, it was, it was sort of like, how long do you want to make a run at this without these two individuals that have been so key? Mm-hmm. And you start thinking about that and you realize it, you know, and, and also, yes, the investment banker piece, you know, I had been there in those settings before. So, I also understood, and I think dad understood this as well. I mean, I remember him spaying, saying specifically, you know, it's not often that things come together in a way that this type of an offer is made to somebody that has not been in business, but four years. I mean, that's very rare, but it was just sort of the stars aligned in that regard. And, you know, we, so yeah, when we had a great investment banker that had approached us right before then. And basically just said, I know you're probably not thinking of selling, but you should be. And, you know, you need to be paying attention to this stuff. And of course, I, you know, I knew that. But it was good to have those kind of people also on my side. So, you know, I'll give a shout out to JB Shireman and Nicole Fry. They were fantastic and great people. And so anyway, those they they really went to bat for us and made our lives a lot easier through that whole process. But I will say that if there was a father-son discussion, it was my dad taking more of a long-term logical view and me trying to get through the emotional side of it because I'm still a young guy mm-hmm. and wondering, okay, what am I going to do? Because I, I'd seen this before and I'll tell you a story. So I would go, we when I was an investment banker in Houston, I worked for Credit Suisse First Boston and we worked long long hours and we would get off and we would immediately run to the bars at like 10 10:30 at night and try to drink a number of cocktails before they shut the place down and i remember i forget the name of the bar but it's the oldest bar in Houston probably still alive downtown and there was a a lady there that had a big i don't remember if it was a sombrero type hat some kind of really big hat on and she was absolutely the life of the party and i remember at the time we were all having a blast and she's the life of the party. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $20 for your hat. And she sold me the hat. (laughs) So I've got the hat on and I get tired of the hat after, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes I get. And so everybody's got the hat on at some time, right? Throughout the night. I don't know. It's just something fun fun to do is wearing this hat around. And after that though, I noticed, I was like the lady that used to be the life of the party. It was like, she just drifted off into the, you know, the background somewhere. And so That was a lesson that I caught early on. I was like, when you sell your hat, you no longer have a hat. (laughs) So, you know, and that's, that's, you know, there's a big truth to that, right? When you sell something that is associated with you, you know, it changes you. And there's some emotional side to that because you really do sell your baby when you do that.
1: So you sit around the table with your dad, your other business partners, maybe some, some early investors are, are in on
0: the offer. And you're like, okay, we're doing this. And that was? September of 2016.
1: Okay. So deal well, goes. Well, actually,
0: that's when the deal was announced. Announced, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, we worked on it the year before that.
1: So since 2016, talk to us about, I mean, has, has the idea been the whole time, I'm going to do something else in the beverage industry? That's my passion. Were there other rabbit holes you went down exploring? obviously you've come up with a phenomenal product now, but how did you get there?
0: Well, you know, I did inherit from my dad that I don't sit still very well. He's a harder worker than I am. No question, but I cannot stay on the couch. That's just not something I can do. And, you know, I'm not going to go retire. What am I going to do? Go play golf and hunt and stuff like that. I mean, I know everybody talks about that as your dream. Trust me. I'm sure after a week or two, you're like, okay, what else can I go do? You know? <laughs> exactly. And so and and i've talked to that people ask me all the time like man this must be life changing you know you can go do what you want now and all that and i'm like you know it's it's true like you don't worry about prices at groceries and stuff like that and so it does change your your life in in very meaningful and and ways that you know you see on a daily basis but You really have to figure out what makes you happy at the end of the day, you know, and I've heard people joke, yeah, like, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, but money buys stuff and stuff makes me happy, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not really. Right. Right. Like you can get some quick fixes here and there, but you better figure out what you want to do and what makes you happy. And I had to think about that a long time. I mean, I still have kids in school, so it's not like Jennifer and I are going to go run to the beach and never be seen again or go travel around and things like that. Well, we got, we got real responsibilities. And so maybe there's a time and a place for that, but it just, it was never really much of a thought. I knew that I'm an entrepreneur by heart. I mean, that's what the thing that really, really I've, and I've thought about it a lot. The thing that I love to do is the creation. I love thinking about the strategy of it, the creative, and and I've had help with this. Don't get me wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. but you know, we work my, the guy that's designed all of this stuff. His name is Dan Minton and he's fantastic. And he did most, almost all of our stuff at revolver. And, you know, I love working with that guy and just thinking through like the emotions that it might elicit and how people take things and, and you get into the, so there's this creative aspect of it then there, and and there's the psych, and then there's the uh, psychology of it too. So, you know, I love reading about human psychology and what makes people do things. There's so many awesome experiments mm-hmm. that uh, are out there that people have done from a, a psychology standpoint that just are fascinating to me on what creates a trigger inside of a human to do things and why they do things and yeah that that is fascinating to me and then honestly I love the what do you want to call it like self I don't know if it's affirmation or that rush of adrenaline that I get when a consumer tries something that I've got a hand in mm-hmm. and they like it yeah I'm like yes that that moment right there is what I really I mean, that's what gets me off the couch. It's yeah. the creative piece. you know, I'll be really honest, like once you're up and turning the crank and it's doing over and over and over the same things, like there's a certain amount of that you do. you have to. I won't say it's the thing that gets me real fired up, but you know you still have to execute at the end of the day. And so that's also though, where you hope that there are people that you've partnered with that are really good and really are enjoy that. but it's that piece of being out in the wild seeing your product on the, on the shelf, having pride there and having people try it and love it. And you, you know, that's what I really, and talking to them about it. Like, that's the part that I really, really love, Mm -hmm. you know, after thinking through many, many days at revolver, you know, there's, we used to, I mean, as as you probably know, I mean, we were out there pretty much most Saturdays and it's a ass kicker getting up every Saturday. But yet once you're there and you're talking to people and they're telling you how much they're enjoying the product. I mean, you know, sounds a little corny, but it's like, hey, if you can make somebody's day just a little bit more enjoyable, you know, they like the product or they enjoy being out there listening to the bands. That's awesome.
1: Well, I mean, that's a great point. And you think you just unpack the psychology of, you know, a lot of people work their whole lives. And yeah, they they get enjoyment out of their paycheck or maybe the the end product, but they don't get that instantaneous feedback of what I created or what I did today, you're telling me you really enjoy. Like I never thought about you making this product and that kind of being the the end result that's like, the money's great, but to to hear that, to go, holy shit, people are like digging my product and they're telling me about this.
0: That's got to feel pretty good. It does, it does. I mean, I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, I think, but happiness you know, it's not this thing that's elusive that sits out there on the horizon that God, if I can just get this next career jump, if I can just get, and I have to be careful because I think that way, you know, like, what does the career look like? You know, building this thing, don't getting there to this thing. You know, my wife oftentimes reminds me it. She's like, that's not what it's about. You know I mean? She's good at this too, but in her, she's always reminding us to don't look too far forward. Enjoy the moment. And that's good reminder for me because ultimately that's where, you know, it's your day to day, like that you got to find happiness in the simplest of things too. I mean, that's for me, at least I don't know about other people. Some people paint, some people do photography, all that kind of stuff. It's that daily living and finding just the little things that, that make, make you happy. You know, that to me is what I try to think about and focus on. You know, I don't know what's out there in the future. May not even make it there. You never know. You know, just it's the day to day stuff. And so it's trying to figure out on a day to day basis, like just simple stuff. You know, what did you enjoy that day? Yeah. Do more of it. So knowing what you know now
1: about product to shelf and marketing and differentiation and if it's not crowded now, it's getting very crowded. Like, you know, a lot about that and timing. How do you feel about the position of this product and where it is and sort of the noise of the market? I mean, I feel like every time I go to the specs or the grocery store, there's some new drink that you need to try that's got an alcoholic, you know, content to it. So
0: talk about that. I mean, I think anybody will, will agree that it's tough right now to stand out, you know, I mean, When you think back to when we built Revolver and we're coming out with these beers, you know, there were beers on the shelves back then, but there were there weren't near the local breweries back then. So you really, you know, were out there in with, you know, not a ton of competitors that were kind of like you and people understood that difference. And now you know gosh the aisles are absolutely stacked and crowded with stuff a lot of it's alike though in many ways Mm -hmm. and so i think that's what we're trying to say look we're we may look (laughs) colorful and in a box like everybody else but we're very different and as i was saying before i'll have a full-on conversation with somebody about why we're different and they just kind of nod their head and may or may not quite get it so what we see is if you'll just, if we can just get liquid to lips, if Mm -hmm. I can just get somebody to try it, they go, Ooh, that's different. I've never tried anything like that. And so that's what our challenge is, is how do we get break through the noise? Cause we look like, you know, a lot of other packages out there, you know, they all bright colors, only so many colors you can use. And so Mm -hmm. not going to lie. It's, I mean, I, I laughed, I saw there was a Saturday night live clip that, Jiffy Lube and JC Penny had come out with a new saucer. <laughs> I just thought, okay. We've we jumped. Go. this reference will probably be missed on the younger people listening, but we jumped the shark, you know, at that point. And so
1: No, but I think you're I mean, you nailed it. That is a key differentiator. Like there's there's all kinds of studies you can take in in marketing classes in college that talk about, you know, the way they advertise to kids and you know, the, there's a bazillion different cherry or different cereal brands, but they're going to put them down low so the kid sees them, and maybe it's the bumblebee or the tiger or whatever that they don't really give a shit about what the cereal tastes like. They just know they want the one with the tiger on there, and they're going to jump up and down. And it's just easier to throw the thing, a cereal in the cart and move on, so your kid doesn't have a temper tantrum on online, right? So, like, I'm looking at this marketing material. And you're right. I mean, the colors are great. You got kind of a lizard on there sitting underneath palm tree. You got made with only real ingredients, you know, all real easy cocktails. Like it it resonates, but it's not until you taste it. Right. And right. now I'm thinking, like, now that I've tasted it, like what impacts me. And like to me, it's it again, different background than most, like growing up on an organic farm and understanding the importance of. Good ingredients, real ingredients. Like, I feel good about drinking this product. You know, there's so many of them you're like, I guess I'll have another one of those, but that's probably not very good for me. And this one, it's like, this is just enjoyable. Well, like, I can just put myself in all the places that I like, tell your ride, Colorado, on the river, fishing, whatever. And if I got one of these, I'm
0: going to be pretty damn happy about it. You know, simple, it turns out simple's hard. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's just easy to get water, alcohol and go buy, you know, flavors by the drum, natural and artificial flavors by the drum and just dump them in. And simple's hard because, you know, we ordered juices, like not from concentrate juices, from a number of suppliers. And we just had them all shipped to my house. And Ryan came up and we spent days, you know, multiple trips up here, days just trying different juices from different suppliers. And, you know, it's kind of funny that the stuff that turns out tasting the best comes from your backyard. And you're like, okay, well, maybe there's maybe there's a reason for that. It also, you know, we're just proud to use something from the state of Texas. And so, you know, use it for do, do what you're good at. I mean, that's another, you know, I mean, I talk about that a lot of times to my kids. I'm like, you know, what do you enjoy? What are you good at? Somebody told me very early on. Be careful what you get good at because someone is going to pay you to do that for the rest of your life. And, you know, I'm I'm big on that. So anyway, I digress. No, the other thing that
1: that I'm enjoying about this product is like there's a lot of new ones out there that, you know, that tout, you know, some type of just like making your, you know, your vodka tonic on the trunk of your car, your ranch water, whatever. And the ingredients are there, but you taste the can. Have you ever noticed that like, like they, they nailed the the type of ingredients, but when you're down to maybe halfway through, it's like the taste of the aluminum can comes out in the product, at least to me, maybe I'm weird, but this, this doesn't do that. It's like, it's the natural product. Well, as,
0: as liquid warms up, you often that bouquet or whatever you want to call it, that palette that opens up as well. So if there's anything in there, like, I mean, it's probably, I don't know if people know this or not, but a lot of times when you're dealing with certain alcohols, they'll use a masking agent because they may not taste as good naturally. And so they'll use a masking agent and they can, you know, I don't claim to know exactly what they do, but when you speak to people that do this for a living, they say that, you know, it's really interesting. It's like, it doesn't taste that way. Like, you know, if you taste it by itself, it tastes one way, but then once you put it in a drink, it makes some other taste go away, which is really weird to me. And, and they've done psychological studies with taste too. And there's some fascinating studies out there about, you know what people think they're eating and you know they'll claim something to strawberry when it's actually chocolate flavor and you know there's some really interesting studies out there but you know you t- back to the back to the flavor that you're getting i just you know without knowing which one it is and what's in it and i don't know what's in those i mean we what's in ours is what's listed on the side of the can right because we don't have a catch-all in there you know there are no flavors which open the world up to <laughs> lots and lots of flavors and or or masking agents and so I don't know what you're picking up in there, but could be in some type of a flavor that's been added in Mm -hmm. there. And as the beverage warms up, you're, you're tasting it. Red, I have a quick question. Do you think that part of what separates Watertight from a lot of the other, like you said, colorful boxes, you know, you name any seltzer that's on the shelf at Albertsons today. Do you think part of the reason why Watertight is so different is because it's a cocktail in a can. It doesn't have that carbonation or at least that heavy carbonation that kind of makes all the other seltzers blend together yeah it's interesting that you pick up on that that lower carbonation is on purpose and you know we were thinking about ourselves out on the boat and you're in your you know swimsuit or whatever and you just don't want that big gas belly and so it's like we wanted to go lower carbonation and the other reason is is that We wanted to mimic a cocktail so it's a lot of times if you're making a cocktail at the bar and you know you hit it with seltzer or something like that in there fizzy water that effervesces some so you get some carbonation in the drink but it's not you know super bubbly anymore like you're drinking you know soda out of a can or like a fizzy water out of a can or a bottle where you just are almost overloaded with carbonation this has a lower carbonation and we have had it described as people will say god these are like crushable and I love that technical term, crushable. You can, you know, you. I think you said it earlier. You got to be careful with these because they're lower carbonation and they're, you know, they, they're all real.
1: So I was at a uh, a conference recently for for my company where they bring all of the the men and women responsible for producing business into locked in and retaining that business and our spouses and one of the guest speakers was Simon Sinek, who's a pretty fascinating guy and he talked about having this mindset of you know when you're in business really in life of the infinite game so it's not finite meaning there's if you're just solely focused on winning or losing and playing to the end of the fourth quarter then then that's finite but if you can transcend to this mindset of like the infinite game that you're just always playing and you're going to win and lose Then your mindset's totally different and it just it seems like because of the the hard work and the grit and determination that you and your dad and your business partners had early on the first go round like this time although you're focused and you want this on every damn shelf out there like i get it but like you're having fun now and it just seems like this this different mindset of like i know what i'm doing And I'm on to something and to your point, all I got to do is
0: get it to your lips and you're going to make the right decision because this is a damn good product. You know, it's interesting because first of all, I am having fun. Sometimes you have to remind yourself though, Mm -hmm. that you're having fun. I mean, that's one of the, you know, you're still banging out emails and, you know, I mean, work is work in that regard, but, you know, I guess I have a different perspective now also, you know, having been through experience that I've had before and it does help you put it into certain you know helps you put it into context a little bit and so I don't take things as seriously as I used to I still take them pretty seriously if it's you know if it's our bottom line so to speak because we have to we have to make it work but you know I try to extract more fun out of it I do and we have to remind ourselves I mean we do we remind ourselves you know or try to remind each other and this is the interesting thing because Ryan's in Houston and uh, Daniela is in Houston, and Liz is in Austin. And so, you know, we're working in different cities, so we don't have the daily interaction that a lot of people have. So when we go and we meet in Austin, you know, we all make sure to go out and have drinks together. And when we meet in Houston, we try and meet at the, we use a thing called the Common Desk, which is great. I don't know if people out mm-hmm. there are familiar with it, but we use it. And it's been great for us because we can go to any common desk and we'd meet up and go have drinks. And so, you know, it's very different. Whereas Revolver, you know, we, we started with a mud lot and dug ditches together and, you know, put in, you know, we had some help, of course, but, you know, built that thing up from the ground. So it was very physical and very much, I see you every day mm-hmm. and very much family involved. And this is a different kind of company. This is spread out but it still has to work. And so you don't see each other as much. And so, you know, I mean, the video calls are are helpful. You know, you're not just talking on the phone. You can actually see people and get facial responses and stuff. And, you know, we, you know, it's good to, we work alone a lot. So it's good to see, see each other, but it is a different challenge. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> so I'm bringing it kind of full circle because we've hit on, on being dads of daughters and, and sons to our dads. You know and, and the perspective gained from that and, and family business and you know kind of making that all work and look you can't do no successful person can honestly say there weren't sacrifices along the way to make that happen right less time with your family time away from your family the stresses of getting there all of those you got to balance and manage and you know and make sure that that, that core. Family piece is intact, right? Because without that, like, who gives a shit? It's not, none of it's worth it. So, a lot of times on this podcast, we end with a saying and then a question. And the saying is, you know, I've heard this since I was little. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And then we turn around and say, it's not who you know, but who knows you. And so, in thinking about, you know, your daughters and your wife and your dad, and the perspective that you have now,
0: you know, what do you want them to know about you? Well, I'm glad you're ending with these really light questions. You know, know, I honestly, I think they know me better than I know me Mm -hmm. sometimes. And so I think I just want them to know how thankful I am because I mean, you know, they live in my own world sometimes because I have to get certain things done or I'm focused on things. And my wife has said to me, so won't use names to protect the innocent, but I said, uh, she said, you know, I really like so-and-so, you know, he's great for your company. He's, he's human. You know, you're a robot sometimes. Right. And I'm like, you know, it gets that way sometimes where you're, you, you get to be a robot. And so they will pull me out of that oftentimes. And, you know, you just get so focused on what you're doing. And so, you know, I think they, they know a lot about me probably more than i know about myself i go through life sometimes being a little bit unaware of things that i probably should be aware of and they oftentimes you know are there to help fill in those gaps and they understand and they they know i'm just trying to get things done or whatever but you know you know, i mean i don't mean that in like i try to spend lots of good time with the kids and but i just know that you know, she'll, she's often reminding me like, now, you know, you know, yesterday we had a discussion that today's good Friday. So today I wake up and I'm like, why are you home? Why aren't you at school? (laughs) You know? And she's like, don't you remember today's good Friday? I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So it's just stupid stuff like that. But no, I mean, I just hope they know how thankful I am to have them because there is no way that I could have done it without them. Let me give you, let me give you an example. Jennifer, when we first started this, this was first starting revolver this is 2011 and you know we're buying property we're buying equipment we've hired grant i'm writing checks left and right and you know i mean i'd done all right before then but these are not small checks right. and i would just walk over and hand jen the checkbook and i'd tell her how much and she would write the check and then i would just sign it and or have her sign it and that would be it and it was like that was you know, a physical manifestation of, you know, people are always like, oh, entrepreneurs love risk. No, we don't. We hate risk. We try to get rid of risk at every turn. And so, but you know, it's just that kind of like having your back and just writing the checks physically for you. And I remember I would wake up at two o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat. Oh my God, what am I doing? Am I going down the wrong path? I mean, there's a ton of breweries out there. Why am I doing this? This can't, this can't be right. Am I really making the right choice? And she'd say, okay, well, tell me about it. You know, I mean, this is two o'clock in the morning and we're sitting in bed and she'd say, well, tell me about it. And I'd say, well, gosh, Texas seems to be a great market. We're sitting outside six and a half million person Metroplex. Uh, we've got this great location for people to come out to and enjoy themselves and listen to music. And, you know, they got this world-class brewer that's joining us that's from Texas and understands the Texas palate and Texas just culture. And, you know, we're, we, we've got this, this, uh, you know, great team put together. And that's a whole nother subject is how great of a team we had. These mm-hmm. people went through walls for us. But she, you know, and I'd bring up, I'd kind of tell her like about the situation, like what was going on. And she'd say, look at me. And she'd go, you know, then what are you worried about? Yeah. And I'm like, thank you. Good night. You know, that's no, simple. That, that's awesome.
1: I mean, you behind so many successful entrepreneurs and teams and companies is is something that's, I don't think talked about enough and that's our families i mean they they sacrifice a lot too to allow us to go pursue our passions and and make it happen so really do appreciate you sharing that and before we sign off i don't think we need to, everybody knows revolver and of course it's it's now owned by miller coors, Molson coors and now. Yeah, now Molson Coors. Um, but go pick yourself up some for the weekend but give us give us a plug on on watertight and where people can find it and kind of what's
0: next. Yeah, so we've launched in Austin. Uh, we've launched in Houston. Uh, we're launching in DFW right now. You know go, there is a find us page on watertightcocktails.com that you can go to that shows where we are. I know that most total wines have watertight now. HEBs have them and are getting them trying to bring them into some central markets and, you know, just watch the list. We're going to we're gonna keep trying to grow this brand, but uh, we need all the help we can get from uh, folks listening today. Go get them and tell people about them and get the word out there. You're going to try something that you haven't tried before.
1: Well, Rhett, thank you for joining us on this good Friday. It was wonderful to sit down and visit with you. And uh, it's just going to be
0: amazing to watch where this company goes we really appreciate it well thank you guys for having me thank you for the time here today and i really enjoyed talking to you thanks
1: so much for tuning in to this episode of the climb if you enjoyed the episode please consider subscribing and if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast feel free to share this with them thanks again and we'll see you on the next episode